we follow you, Lord, because you are the way, the truth, and the life. You are life eternal. Lord, you're, you're, you're awesome. You're amazing. You're wonderful. And Lord, you lead us, God, by your Holy Spirit. Spirit of the Lord, we pray and invite you now to come and work in our hearts. Work in our hearts this morning, Father. Spirit of God, work in my heart. Let me deliver your word with truth and power. And, and just, Lord, let me give it forth and send it forth, Father, into the hearts of your people. And Lord, prepare our hearts to receive it as we study it. And change us and transform us, Lord. We want relationship. We want that dynamic relationship with you, Lord. Not religion, not tradition, but a living faith. So, Lord, transform us and change us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray. If you agree with that prayer, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Amen. Praise the Lord. Great to see everyone this morning. So thankful to be back in our home church. At Calvary Chapel, if you're visiting with us, we go verse by verse through the New Testament on Sunday mornings and verse by verse through the Old Testament on Sunday night. Very thankful that you're here. And so this morning, we're looking at a pretty fascinating passage. We're looking at a beheading, okay? We're looking at a, a massacre of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 14. So it's a, it's a little gruesome, but there's an amazing, awesome story in this passage. This morning I'm teaching Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. So if you would turn your Bibles there, I'm going to read the first couple of verses so we know what direction the text is taking us in this morning, and then we'll go from there and go verse by verse. Matthew chapter 14, verses uh, 1 through 10. Let's look at it. It says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. Therefore, these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and it pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oath and because of those who had sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So, here it is, verse 10. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we study it, Lord, bring it to life in our hearts. Let us see it in truth. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. Amen. The title of my message this morning is Standing for the Truth. Standing for the Truth. That's the, that's the overarching theme of the message I want to present to you this morning. But when we use that phrase, standing for the truth, your first question should be, well, what are we standing for? What is the truth? Jesus said in John 14, chapter 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So standing for the truth means standing for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jesus told his disciples in John 17, 17, he said, sanctify them by the truth. 
your word is truth. So when we say standing for the truth, we are talking about standing firm in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and standing firm on the truth of God's word. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. The word of God is a sure anchor for your life. In an ever-changing world, it is our firm foundation. So that brings me to the question, how far are you willing to go in your faith in Jesus? How far are you willing to go for your faith in Christ? Are you willing to stand for the truth, even when it goes against the grain of the world? It can be very difficult. What if it affects your life? What if it affects your job? What if it affects your family? What would you do? Where is your commitment level to Christ? That is a question that, I don't, that we must all, each and every person here, including myself, must look within and ask ourselves, because uh, and, and it, it will reveal the true condition of our hearts, the true spiritual condition of our hearts. So as we study John the Baptist and we look at standing for truth, I encourage you and challenge you to examine your own walk with Christ and see where you stand. And with that said, meet John the Baptist with the glasses and all back in his day. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He, was bapti he baptized Jesus in the Jordan. He made that famous statement, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember what he wore? He wore camel's hair and a leather belt. Wow, thunder from heaven. <laughs> it's raining outside, praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. That's a little sign. He's telling y'all, he's telling us all, pay attention. Listen to what the word says. Um, but he wore camel's hair and leather belt. His food was locusts and honey. In his life, you need to understand, John the Baptist experienced great faith. He struggled with doubt. But in the end, his faith triumphed. But it cost him imprisonment, and it cost him death. His head was cut off, all because he stood for the truth and refused to compromise. Presbyterian minister Peter Marshall says this, Unless we stand for something, we shall fall for anything. What will you stand for in this life? I hope and my prayer is that you'll stand for Jesus. You'll stand for the one who died on the cross for your sins, who rose from the grave, the one who's given you eternal life, that you'll stand firm. And if, you, and if you don't know him, you'll come to know him as your Lord and Savior, and you'll stand firm. I want to give you three reasons this morning to stand for the truth. But before I give you those three reasons, we're going to study John the Baptist. And then at the end of my message, I'll give you three reasons we stand for the truth. So let's take a look at it. Verse by verse, Matthew chapter 14, verse 1. It says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. Who is Herod the Tetrarch? This is none other than Herod Antipas. Tetrarch means ruler of the fourth of the kingdom. I've got a slide I want to show you. Take you back to the first century. This was the family of Herod, okay? Herod the Great is the one on top. When Herod the Great passed away, he passed his kingdom, he divided his kingdom into four separate territories. And if you see the one I circled, Herod Antipas, he was a tetrarch. He gave him a fourth of the kingdom. 
And it was over this fourth of the kingdom that Herod Antipas was over. But also what I want you to see is, as we look at the, the Herodian family, is the, this family, they were anti-Christianity. They did not like Jesus. They did not like Christianity. The whole entire family was against Christianity. Herod the Great at the top, do you remember what he did? In Matthew, got Matthew's Gospel? He went and had all the babies murdered in Bethlehem with the hopes of killing baby Jesus. Then Herod Antipas, the next one down on the tree, his third son, he's the one that you're going to see in our text this morning. He killed John the Baptist. He also, this is the same Herod Antipas that Jesus stood before, and Herod Antipas mocked him uh, before sending him to go before a trial. And then you move down one, Herod Agrippa, the guy over on the bottom left, third level down, Herod Agrippa, he persecuted the church in Acts chapter 12. He killed James. He, Im he imprisoned Peter. And then at the very bottom, the one I circled, Herod Agrippa II, um, he stood in judgment over the Apostle Paul. You can read about that in Acts chapter 26. He is the one that sent Paul to Rome to stand before Caesar. And the reason I explain all this to you, the Herodian family, is, this, is for this purpose. The Herodian family in the Bible represent the hostility that Christianity faced in the first century. Okay? They are a picture of the world's opposition to Jesus Christ. Christianity didn't just show up on the scene and everybody said, oh, praise the Lord, hallelujah. God is here and he's... And he's, he's making his kingdom known? No. The world was a dark place. It was a dark place filled with sin, just like it is today. But Christ came into this world to shine the light and bring the truth of the gospel. And in their sinful, fallen state, even back then, many rejected it, including the Herodian family. So they, that's, that's a, this is who John the Baptist is up against. This is who Jesus is up against, and Stephen, and, and the apostles, and all of them. They faced a constant struggle, a war with the world of persecution. So that's Herod the Tetrarch, verse 1. Let's look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, Matthew chapter 14, And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work within him. Now, if you know anything about history uh, in the Herodian family, you'll know that Herod was a very superstitious person. He was a very superstitious person. He lived, history, secular history and biblical history tell us both that he lived in a state of paranoia. He was a deeply troubled man. And I present to you this morning, he was a deeply troubled man because of his sin. And because of his sin, his past haunted him. His past haunted him. You know, uh, all the things that we do in our past, they haunt us. They remind us. They condemn us until we come to faith in Christ. And once you come to faith in Christ, he takes the guilt, he takes the shame, he takes the darkness, and he places it under the blood. And he completely washes you and cleanses you. But this is, this is who this Herod guy is. You know, application for today. When you live in rebellion to God, it will haunt your mind. It will haunt your mind. 
When a person refuses to follow God's blueprint for life, it is a hard life, a difficult life, a painful life. It is a, uh, it is a deceptive life. You know, before coming to Christ, I was always reminded in my brain. I was always wrestling with the past and all the things I had done. What do I do with my guilt? What do I do with my sin? And then I met Christ. And Jesus said, I'll take that from you. I'll take that from you. I'll take that load off of you. I'll take that darkness off of you. I'll take it and I'll place it on me at the cross. And he completely wipes the slate clean. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way in which seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. The world's deception brings death and destruction to the heart and mind. Jesus brings healing. Jesus brings life to our hearts and our minds. But Herod was a very superstitious man. And he's like, oh! If you look at... um, Look at the next verse. Look at the next verse. Verse 3. Notice it says, for Herod had. That word had in verse 3, this is um, Matthew's recollection of what had happened prior to this point. This is reflecting back on what had happened to to John the Baptist. Let's look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, for Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his, brother's, his brother Philip's wife. So this place called the Fortress of Macharis, this place called the Fortress of Macharis, it still stands to this day there in the Jordan next to Israel. This is where Herod imprisoned John the Baptist. It was on the eastern side of the Dead Sea in Jordan. I'm hoping to go visit there next year when I go to Israel, hopefully, Lord willing but it's still standing there to to, to this day. It was during this stay that John the Baptist had a crisis of faith. He sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus, because remember, John was in prison. He don't don't understand what's going on, and he sends a word. He says, are you the coming one, or shall we look for another? So John the Baptist, this great man of God, he even experienced doubt. He experienced like, ah, what's going on in this world? yes. Even great men and women of faith can have a crisis of faith. But notice, Jesus does not condemn John for his sincere question. He does not question John's faith. Jesus simply reminds him, look at the impact I'm having on the world. Jesus told John's disciples in Matthew chapter 11, verse 4, Jesus says these words, You go and tell John the things which, I hear and, which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus is like, John, I see where you're at. You're in prison, but you're going to be a testimony for me. And here we are, 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about John the Baptist being in prison. His, His testimony was that you can endure persecution You can endure hardship. You can endure anything that this world can throw at you for the sake of Christ. If Christ is living inside of you and if you love him more than anything. When you stand for the truth, it will put you in uncomfortable situations. But when you find yourself there, don't 
be shaken. God is at work. So if you find yourself in that difficult situation, in that prison, in that hard times, let your roots, let your faith grow deep in the ground and say, Lord, here I stand in the midst of this storm, in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of this difficulty. I'm going to stand for you because I love you more than anything in this life. That's what we have to do. Now, the obvious question, if you look at verse 3, is there, there's a huge question here. What, what, was, uh, what was John's crime? Why was John the Baptist put into prison? He was put into prison for calling out Herod Antipas for committing adultery with his brother's wife. Secular history testifies to this, that he went to Rome, he went to Rome and saw his brother there, saw his brother's wife there. They had an affair, they fell in love, they divorced their spouses, and they got married and they moved back, okay? And John the Baptist is calling out this sin. You see, John the Baptist was not politically correct. He was not seeker-sensitive. He was more concerned with God's character and biblical truth, okay? He, he, he wanted to stand firm in his truth and be a witness. Notice John's authority. John, who gives you the authority to go and confront Herod Antipas like this? Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4 with the question, who gives you the authority? Verse 4 says, because John said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So what was John the Baptist's authority? It was scripture. It was scripture. This was against God's law. This was against God's word. Specifically, the seventh commandment. Seventh commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. And so he's calling out Herod Antipas. You see, God has a moral law. God has a moral law. And that moral law was written on two stone tablets. What do we call those? The Ten Commandments. But Romans chapter 2 also teaches that God has written his law on our hearts. Did you know that? Go study Romans chapter 2. It says God has given every man and woman a conscience. And on their conscience, he has is, he is given, given them a moral code of what's right and wrong. You don't have to tell someone that it's wrong to murder, Okay. They know inherently in their hearts it's wrong to murder or to lie or to steal. Okay, God has written that moral law. So John the, the Baptist, in, in my view, when you look at all of Scripture, he's, he is just appealing to his conscience because you have to inform the conscience of the violation of God's moral law, which is the bad news that we've sinned. And then what does that do? What does the law do? The law leaves us guiltless. It shuts the mouth of justification. It points us to Jesus. It's not just to condemn you and leave you in a place of condemnation. It's to point you to the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what the moral law does. But John appeals to the law. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 is, man, the scripture gives us all kind of intimate details about these folks. Look at verse 5, and we're, asking, we're, we're trying to figure out who, um, who this Herod Antipas, more about him. Verse 5 says, And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude, because they counted him as a prophet. So not only was Herod a superstitious man filled with paranoia, 
but he had no backbone. He suffered from a disease that I've had in my life. It's called the fear of man. The fear of man. The fear of man will crush you, okay? The fear of man, it, it will crush you. Listen to Proverbs 29, 25. It says, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. You see, when you fear man, you are walking into a place of danger. You're walking into a place of danger because you are no longer trusting in the truth. And we have to put our trust and our faith in Christ and in his word. You know, at its core, at its core, the fear of man is about our desire for man's approval. Now, there's nothing wrong with seeking people's approval. We all do it all the time. I do it all the time. You do it all the time. There's nothing wrong with trying to make people happy. We like to make people happy. I like to make people happy. You like to make people happy? We all like to make people happy, but never at the expense of compromising truth. We drive our stake in the ground of God's word, and we say, I will not bend, and we don't bow to the fear of man as Herod was. Herod was just fearful, superstitious, a spooky man, and he went with the whims of the world. Verse 6. Verse 6 says, And when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them, and it pleased Herod. Herodias, the woman Herod was in an adulterous affair with, had a daughter who entertained Herod with a provocative sexual dance. History and the Bible tell us that Herod was a very immoral man. Herod was a slave, not only to the culture, but to the world, but to his sexual desires and to his superstitions. You know, sexual sin is, is a deep-rooted sin that grips people, and it's hard to break free from. I know. It once gripped me. But through Christ, I have been set free. I have been set free. And Christ can do the same for us. Verse 7 Verse 7 says, Matthew chapter 14, verse 7, Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Did you see that? Did you read that? What a statement. When a man promises a woman, he will give her, and I quote, whatever she may ask. She's got some serious mojo. Okay? She's got some serious mojo. She's got some serious power. But this speaks to the influence that she had over him. This is crazy. Therefore, he promised with an oath. He promised. I mean, I think I would say, hey, what do you want first? You know, what's the deal? What's the parameters? But no, he gave his word. He's going to give her whatever she wants. So look at verse 8. This is where it gets sadistic. It's not a fairy tale ending. They don't ride off into the sunset. Verse 8, so she, having been prompted by her mother, who was the one who had the affair, secular history tells us this young lady's name was Salome, she said, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. Give me his head on a platter. That's sadistic. 
That's evil. To hate someone to the point you would have them murdered is evil. But friends and family, newsflash, this is how the first century world treated Christianity. This is is how they were treated. Even the crucifixion of Jesus, it was not a celebrated event. You know, we decorate things on Good Friday and Easter weekend and make it pomp and beautiful and we come to church and we got we dress to the nines and we're looking fine and we're all pretty and but it wasn't like that on that first Easter weekend. It wasn't like that on that Good Friday. It was a bloodbath. The the crucifixion was meant to inflict mass punishment on the victim. God, God, the creator of the universe, comes down and he is humiliated. It is demoralizing. It is humane, inhumane, excuse me. It was wicked what took place at the cross. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. There was a pagan religion back in that day that the earth was a god. And Jesus, the son of God, was not worthy to be even touching the ground of the deity of the pagan religion of that day okay he was hung on a cross crucifixion was created by the persians around between three and four hundred bc it, uh, it was perfected by the romans as the testimony of the new testament says the the crucifixion was meant to inflict mass uh not mass it was meant to inflict the greatest amount of punishment it was a political torture Basically, it was Rome. Remember, Rome had taken over Israel, had taken over Jerusalem. They were in charge. And basically, crucifixion was, you fall, in line, you fall out of line with us and you do what's wrong, this is what's going to happen to you. That's why they believed that when Jesus was going through the Via Della Rosa, when he was going to the cross, there was a sign being carried. This is Jesus. This, this, this is Jesus of Nazareth. And it was meant as a sign to tell all the people, you violate our law, we will, we, will, we will make the same thing happen to you. Whether it was John the Baptist, uh, the 12 disciples, history tells us 11 of the 12 disciples died by a martyr. John was the only one who died of old age. Stephen, in the book of Acts, all of these men died for their faith. They died standing for Christ. Bottom line is, they loved God more than their own life. Got to ask the question. I'm asking, I'm, I'm, you know what I'm, the only thing I'm doing? I'm asking you what I asked myself this week in my studies. Do we have the same devotion to Christ? Do we love Christ more than we love this life? Look, that's biblical, family. That's biblical Christianity, is that we love him, that you love him more than anything and when you consider everything he's done for you, he has saved you from hell. He's saved you from a life of darkness. He's forgiven all your sin. He's given you a new heart. You're clean on the inside. You're free. You can't help but to say, Lord, you're more important than anything. This is what I call, and this is where if you continue to come to Calvary Chapel Irmo, we're going to teach the word chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we're going to help you grow in your walk with the Lord. And your faith is going to grow deep. It's going to be deep conviction, solid faith, 
standing and movable. But she's like, give me the head on a platter. Gonna get, could get a little PG-13 rated, rated R-ish here, but let's just go where the text takes us. Look at verse 9. Actually, in verse 10 is when we get there, but verse 9 says, And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oath and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. What is it? John's head. But notice the opening of verse 9. Um, the New King James says, The king was sorry. The king was sorry. You're like, Oh, but wait a minute. He's repenting. This is repentance. He says, he says, he's sorry. Was he truly sorry? How can you say you're sorry in one statement and then the next statement, command it to be done? Okay? This, this is not repentance. This is what 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 calls worldly sorrow. Okay? So please understand this. I want to lay this out before you this morning. When it comes to the word repentance in the Bible, there's actually two different definitions of it. Okay? There's a worldly repentance. There's a godly repentance. And this can be found in 2 Corinthians 7.10. The worldly repentance is, oops, sorry, I got caught. And you're so concerned with people around you. You're like, uh-oh, I did wrong, I'm sorry. And, and you're worried about people's opinion. You're worried about what people say. And that is worldly sorrow in God's eyes, okay? That's worldly repentance. But then there's biblical repentance. Biblical repentance is, I don't care what people think. I care what God thinks. Lord, against you and you alone have I done evil in your sight. It's Psalms chapter 51 repentance. After King David slept with Bathsheba and committed adultery and, and all that bad stuff that took place, he, he, he prays in Psalm 51. He says, Lord, against you and you alone have I done evil in your sight. That is biblical repentance, okay? You're not, you're not repenting of your sin because of people. You're repenting of your sin because you sinned against God. That's what biblical repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. Okay, that's biblical towards God. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And that is what Judas Iscariot uh, did. That is uh, what Herod here did. Look at it, verse 9. And the king was sorry. Look at that word, nevertheless. Oops, I'm sorry, I did wrong. But I'm going to do it anyway. That's not biblical repentance. Nevertheless, because of the oath and because of those who sat with him, he commanded to be given to her. And then look at verse 10. Verse 10 is a, is a powerful verse, a lot to think about here. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. That's all the text gives us. How did they take his head off? Maybe they sawed it off. Maybe they took the axe. The Bible doesn't tell us, okay? David, Pastor David's not saying the Bible doesn't that's all it tells us how, how, how did they take his head off that'd be hard to think about put yourself in John the Baptist the, the, the guards come into the dungeon we're taking your head off 
Maybe they strong arm him. Maybe they chain him. Maybe they bound him. We don't know. It just says they took his head off. But they took his head off. What was that like going through his head? He's probably starving, half naked, just in a demoralized state of mind. What is going through, not, not, not what, how it was done, but what is going through John the Baptist's mind? What would enable someone to endure such a difficult situation? Okay? That's the point I'm getting at. We're looking at John the Baptist's heart as he's being beheaded. What would enable him to just to endure as they're getting ready to cut his head off? I present to you, it was a steadfast and firm faith in Christ. It was a steadfast and movable faith in God. You see, his eyes, his spiritual eyes, were not on, were not on this world. His spiritual eyes were on God. And I present to you this morning, that is what enabled John the Baptist to be laid at the altar of wood and for him to lose his head. I don't know about you, but when my life gets threatened, I get scared. I get scared, and I run from danger. I run from danger. I, I, I don't want to put myself in harm's way. We're all naturally made that way. You do it, to, you do it too. We all do it. We want to keep ourselves safe. But when it came to it, he had no choice. He was being put to death. It was his faith in Christ that enabled him to endure such a difficult thing. Verse 10, so he sent and had John beheaded in prison. You know, I wish they, I wish they could have just stopped right there. You know, it would have been good if they just stopped right there. Okay, okay, we got it. We see it. His head's been taken off. There's a torso of a body with a head missing. But look at verse 11. Look at verse 11 in your Bible. It says, And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. I mean, that just had to be a mess. That had to be nasty. You know, that, that would just, I, I don't want to go, I don't want to elaborate. I'm tempted to, but I'm not. Because I don't know. I don't want to go beyond what the text says. But, but for it to be on a platter, his, his decapitated head, and to be brought out, um, given to the girl, and then the girl's like, yay, I got his head. Let me go show it to mommy. And she goes and shows it to her mama. How sadistic is that? How evil is that? You know, when we see evil, when we see murder, we see stuff like this, man. You know, we're like, ugh. We don't want the, we don't want the images in our mind. We're like, ooh, don't want to see that. That's why they, they block images during court TV when they go to show scenes of, of bodies being shot or killed or murdered. They, they block it so the people on TV can't see it because it's not a beautiful image, but not them. The girl and the mama, they're like, yeah, we got his head. They celebrated it, and they rejoiced at his request. And then our final verse this morning then the disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. So the disciples go, grab this headless torso, and they deliver it, and they bury it. What do you think was going through their minds? What do you think was going through their minds as they are taking John the Baptist to his final burial spot? Was the head given to him? Was it not? We don't know. 
But it's like, wow, this could happen to us. We know John the Baptist. He was the one that said, he's the one that said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He is the one that said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I can't help but to think in the disciples' mind as they were taking this body, they were, they were like, this could happen to us. We need to think really long and hard about following Christ. But that was what they faced. You know, this kind of faith, standing firm, is not a, a faith that you can generate. It's not a faith that you can create. It's a faith from the Holy Spirit. When we, when we give our lives and surrender our lives to Christ and we consider the cost, that is the kind of faith that we need to have in our walk with the Lord. A solid biblical faith that we can stand on. This the sure anchor in the storm. So when your life is battered and beaten by tragedy, by bad things, by difficult news, that you stand firm. Or, heaven forbid, you're persecuted. Or you find it being difficult being a Christian. That's the kind of faith that we need to have. I told you at the beginning of my message, I wanted to give you... Um, Three reasons, three reasons you should stand for the truth. I want to give those to you now. Number one, the first reason that you today in 2023 should stand for the truth is this. The truth never changes. The truth never changes. Hebrews uh, chapter 13 verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, for nothing can be done against the truth, but only for the truth. The truth never changes. Jesus doesn't change. His word doesn't change. So that's the first reason you should stand for the truth. Number two is the truth will triumph. The truth will triumph. This is what I believe was going on in the disciples' minds, in their hearts, and in John the Baptist's head as, he's, as he is um, being beheaded and as they're facing this difficulty, is, I put four, that's only supposed to be three, misspelling on my part, or misnumbering on my part. (laughs) It's only three, guys, it's only three. (laughs) The truth will triumph. The truth will triumph. We stand for the truth because the truth will always triumph. The Lord Jesus Christ, one day, nobody knows the day or hour, he could come back before I finish this message, or it might be another thousand years, I don't know. But one day, He will split that eastern sky and he will come again as the king of kings and the lord of lords. He will triumph. He is the the lamb of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he will triumph. That's the second reason you should stand for the truth. And the third reason and final reason you should stand for the truth is this reason. The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. You'll walk in liberty You'll walk in victory. You'll walk with peace of mind, peace in your heart, joy unspeakable. Just, you know, all the stress and the anxiety and the difficulties of this life will fade away and his love and his joy and his peace and his goodness. God is good and his love endures forever. And you can experience that. The truth will set you free. Those are the three reasons you stand for the truth. You and I, friends and family, 
We must stand for the truth in our commitment to Christ and in our witness. You and I must stand for the truth for our children and for our family. And you and I must stand for the truth for the whole world to see that Christ is in us. You know, this is something, this is soul-searching when you think about these things. This is soul-searching. And we all need to look within our own hearts and say, Christ, I'm going to stand for you. I'm going to love you. John the Baptist had the courage to tell the truth even when he knew the truth would cost him dearly. There may come a time, there may come a time where the words I speak from this pulpit will be so unwelcomed that they may come and they may take me away. My one request, pray for me and bring me some Chick-fil-A. <laughs> I love you so much. Hey man, what's up? What's, what's, I'm, that's, the one, that's the one thing I want in heaven is Chick-fil-A and some waffle fries and a Coke or the sweet tea. But Pray, I love Christ so much. I will always tell the truth. And I hope to produce disciples and followers of Christ through the ministry of Calvary Chapel Irmo that will do the same, that will speak the truth in love, not arrogantly, not, not um, judgmentally, but to speak the truth in love and say, hey man, Christ offers you forgiveness. He offers you freedom. Come be a part. Come be a part of this living relationship with Christ. I want to close with one verse. I want to share the gospel. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says this. And this is my, this is my closing. This is my appeal to people who need Christ. If, you, if, you're, if in your heart you feel like you need the Lord, this verse is for you. And please go home and meditate on it and think on it. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. It says, in this is love. Okay, so John is going to define what love is. Love is not sensual. It's pure. It's perfect. It's holy. And God defines what love is. In this is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, um, parents, you can relate to this. When a child, when a, a child comes to mommy and daddy and says, mommy, daddy, how much do you love me? How much do you love me? What do, what do mom and dads do? What do we do with our arms? We stretch out our arms and we tell little Johnny, we tell little Sarah, I love you this much. And they come running into our arms and we hug them. God, 2,000 years ago, stretched out his arms on a cross and said, I love you this much. I love you this much. And how did he love us? Is, this, is it just a, an emotional, spiritual thing? No, it's more than emotional, spiritual. According to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, he loved us by sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, our greatest problem is sin. 
Sin separates us from the life of God, okay? But when we repent and we put our trust in Jesus Christ and we become born again, he removes that barrier of sin and brings us into a new and living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you been born again? Do you love Jesus more than anything? If you're not sure or the answer is no, he invites you to come to him this morning and to confess him as your Lord and Savior, to open your heart and say, Lord Jesus, please come into my life. I understand you died on the cross for my sin and that you love me that much, that you will forgive me of everything. If you haven't done that, please do that this morning. Just say, you can, you can come see a prayer council if you like, or you can do it where you're sitting, but you just simply say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. I turn away from my sin, and I put my trust in you. Please come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior. Open your heart this morning to the love and the truth and the grace of God, and then come grow in your relationship with him through the word. Amen? Love you guys. Thank you all for coming out this morning. Let's close in prayer. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this study this morning of John the Baptist and being beheaded and standing firm. Lord, I pray, God, that you will work in each and every heart this morning, Lord, and that all of us here, God, will open our hearts to your grace, to your truth, to your love and to your mercy. For we love you and praise you. And it's in the mighty and beautiful, wonderful name of Jesus, I pray. All God's people said.